G'day, everyone. Quick message before we start. What we're trying to do with this podcast is to help people better understand their mind and how it works and give people practical strategies they can use to maintain and improve their mental health. Would you consider helping us to continue to do that with a financial contribution, large or small? If so, thank you. Just follow the link in the show notes. All donations, $2 or more, are tax deductible. G'day, welcome to Minding Your Mind. Our podcast is all about your mind and about how it works and about mental health and mental illness. And I'm with Professor Ian Hickey, as always, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. So the two most common mental health conditions are anxiety and depression. And to me, not being the expert, just being the guy, they kind of seem like opposites. Anxiety is when we get agitated, hyped up, on alert, adrenaline flows, we get edgy, pace around, thoughts race through our brain, we see a problem, want to find a way of solving it. What do I do? What do I do? How can I get all my work done in time? How can I fix my relationship with my partner? How can I pay the electricity bill? Depression, on the other hand, is low energy, sloth, hard to get out of bed, hard to get motivated to do anything, sluggish thoughts, who cares, what does it matter, no motivation. Can we view them as opposite states? And if we do, does that help us understand them and ourselves a bit better? Ian, so depression and anxiety both feel terrible, they've got that in common, but as far as being at opposite ends of the spectrum of states we can be in. Does that analysis kind of make any sense? Yes. And many people in my field in psychology and psychiatry and mental health in general have spent their whole careers, decades, some would even say centuries, looking at the differences between the two to make that fundamental distinction that you made. And to see that particularly from a behavioural point of view, just in terms of what you observe. Mm. So anxious states, do involve arousal, fear, running around, <laughs> creating a lot of trouble outside as well as inside your head. We'll come back to what's inside your head because that's when it gets confusing. But from an outside I've point of view. that, yeah. Where that's, <laughs> so from the outside, if you observe someone who's anxious, it's kind of obvious how worked up they are and the, and the actions they're taking, presumably to avoid or get out of the way of whatever the perceived threat is. Hmm. A lot of noise, a lot of action, a lot of movement. And a lot of running away or hiding or doing something. Yeah. The depressive thing, by contrast, yeah, the behavior is one of withdrawal, of stopping, of seemingly not being able to run away, respond to the threat or act. And, and in that sense, mm. is often seen as more behaviorally abnormal. Like, if you're like that, what useful purpose does it serve? Mm. So it's often that depression, in that sense, has been seen as more pathological in the hierarchy of what's bad, anxiety kind of makes sense kind of a lot of the time unless it goes too far, unless you go over the top. And some degree of anxiety, of course, improves performance rather than actually leading to you being dysfunctional. Mm. So we all require some degree of anxiety to do anything useful, to be worked up, to be aroused, built in, but over the top becomes a problem. Depression never makes a lot of sense, really. To withdraw, well, to not solve, to not be able to take on the challenge, and, it seems to be a state it, of defeat. Unless you see it as a, a, a period of rest and rejuvenation, but it doesn't feel very 
rejuvenating, but it, it does feel like I don't have any energy. I need to, I need to, you know, withdraw and build up my strength again. It takes a lot of mental gymnastics to arrive at that point. Right. That, that argument has been put. Okay. That's a way for humans to stop, reflect, think. <laughs> Whatever you've been doing hasn't worked. So stop and think of something different mm. to respond to the threat or the problem that you can't solve. Yep. But I think that takes a fair amount of mental gymnastics. For most people who are in those states, not a lot of good seems to come from it. Right. So historically, I think the distinction that you're making has been seen to be a distinction. Hmm. Probably in more recent times, people who went, now, hang on a sec. People who are depressed have many of the same internal cognitive features as people who are anxious. They go round and round and round in their head around the same stuff. Get stuck They ruminate. They're stuck. And they see the worst side of things. They're going around and around and around. E.g., anxiety, I'm going to lose my job, I won't be able to pay the bills, we'll be out in the street. That goes round and round and round. Uh, And you get a a, a pessimistic bias. You you overestimate the chance of all those things happening. Depression, I'm useless and hopeless because I did this. And again, the similar loop. See, see, this is the danger of radio. If only people could see that little movement you were making... (laughs) Mm. And round and round and round in a circle, drawing a circle in the hand with your finger. We call that reverberating circuits. Yes. Little right. brain circuits, little spinning wheels. And the spinning wheels, if you scan people's brains and you look at those little spinning wheels in circuits in the brain, they're pretty similar. So we call one anxiety and we call one depression. <laughs> They've got a lot in common. When they've gone over the top, so not so much normal anxiety, but yep. anxiety as a problem, and then depression with this ruminative thinking, this going yes. round and round and round. Content as you just stated, it might be slightly different. Mm. The fear one and the anxious one being about fear of the future, what's going to happen, the depressive one being all the things I've done wrong and it'll all be wrong again. There's no point carrying on. Yeah. But it's still a stuck way of thinking. Yep. So people highlight that, that in fact, thinking stuff. Then if you look longitudinal, we tend to say on a particular day, are you anxious or are you depressed? You know, do you have anxiety on, wow. or do you have depression? Don't you have Can you have option C, neither? (laughs) Right. So, well, you can have option C is I've had both and I have one anxiety Mm. all the time. And Well, I've got to tell you, actually, option C, D, and E, now you've raised it. Okay. So another aspect in recent times is to look much, much more, not just on any particular day, but longitudinally. Yeah. And particularly over the course of your life. Mm -hmm. As a kid- you can really only be anxious. Kids don't really get depressed. They get anxious. But as you move into late childhood and into puberty and beyond. Teens. Teens. Depre- I, I hope depressed. you're not going to say teens can't be depressed. Nope. <laughs> they can be. What depressed. is it about teens that we all know? Hmm. They get moody. Yeah. So many of the characteristic brain and features and reflection on self and thinking about the f- future and, and some of the behavior that I was just talking about are much more obvious in teenagers and are much more depressive in their nature. Mm. Gone to bed, not moving, not getting up, feeling hopeless around the world. It is, many people would argue, and I would agree, you can't really be depressed until you've got the brain circuits and features that allow you to behave that way. Children. Oh, gotcha. Children. And this has been argued in – now, I don't want to say that children are one – sorry, prepubertal children are one sort of animal <laughs> – and teenagers are another, but I'm going to say it anyway. Mm. Little kids share a lot in common in terms of brain circuitry and fear circuitry with many other species. 
and we argue all the time that many other species don't really get depressed because they don't really have the frontal lobes. They don't really have the emotional life that humans have. But boy, teenagers do. (laughs) Teenagers develop those circuits. So becoming really human, becoming a real adult also allows you the capacity to develop these kind of behaviours and thoughts that we Mm. characterise as depression. So anxious kids become anxious, depressed teenagers who often become depressed and substance-abusing adults. So there's a lifetime trajectory. The same person is demonstrating these different behavioural states consequent to brain development at different stages of their life. So the distinction we might have cross-sectionally or on one particular day that says anxiety versus depression, we're actually talking about the same person who's anxious a fair bit of the time but has episodes of depression from time to time. Yeah, well, because, I mean, if we see them as opposite states, they still coexist a lot, don't they? And sometimes they can start with anxiety and almost, you know, the fact that you're very anxious might make you depressed. I'm depressed about the feeling, the fact that I feel anxious all the time, or it might start with depression and that depression might lead to anxious thoughts. Will I ever get better? Will I be able to lead a normal life? So the two can domino into each other. You bet. You bet. And now we're on to option D. (laughs) Right. Is a lot of anxiety states get worse when you're depressed. Well, yeah. So a lot of people with depression who are not that anxious the rest of the time get anxious when they are depressed. They have their first ever panic attack. They have the first of this ruminative thinking. They're not normally like that, Hmm. but they have a lot of these anxious phenomena in the depressive state, gets worse. We so there's of, a sort of got both things going at the same time. We were sort of contrasting one with the other, but they've actually got both going. And and so, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, and we both just described how it might happen. But on the other hand, it, if you start with the premise of this episode, that depression is a down, low energy state and anxiety is a hyper agitated state, it almost doesn't make sense. It's, it's almost like they could, they should you know, balance each other out, but that doesn't happen, does it? They make each other worse. Correct. They appear to be opposites, but they actually make each other worse. And what you see often when people who are depressed, and now, we, now of course, we love the semantics of this. Hmm. You see often people who are slowed down, they're withdrawn, they're not doing anything, and then they have these sudden bursts of agitation. Hmm. They look very fearful, they're afraid of something, they're moving a lot, they're terrified. You would call it anxiety. Others, just to be technically difficult, would call it agitation. So they have these various kind of mixed states, if you like. They're up and down. So very anxious and overwhelmed at one moment, then completely withdrawn and doing something next. So so during the state, during that episode, they've got features of both. Mm. And many people would say their depression is much worse because they've got both things going at the same time and, and fluctuating between different manifestations of that. So actually, they're not really opposites. They can co-occur, and when they co-occur, the whole state's a lot worse. Yeah. It's bad. So when people look at the degree of impairment associated with depressive episodes, if you've got depression and you've got really severe anxiety at the same time, the impairment that results is worse. You're even less able to do stuff Mm. and function. And it's really distressing to not do anything and then have overwhelming fear and overwhelming ruminations and maybe have panic attacks as well during the depressive episode. The only analogy I could think of might not be a good one. It's the political spectrum. So left to right, you know, you've got most parties in the centre, Labor Party a little on the left, Liberal Party a little on the right, then far left is socialism and communism, far right is fascism, right? That's the traditional spectrum. But some have said it's rather than a spectrum, it's a circle. And if you look at the two extremes, fascism and communism, in practice, they have very similar 
features with a totalitarianism. Yeah, that. Yeah, that government, <laughs> totalitarianism government, and and not much individual freedom. So is it almost like that? You've got anxiety and depression at opposite ends of the spectrum, but on the other hand, they're both terrible and they both result in really poor mental health. Yes, and I quite like What do you think, think my no, Is it bad? Oh, I think no, it's bad. No, no, no. I think because if you think about that political thing, what is it about? You end up with this kind of trying to control the uncontrollable world. The liberal world says it's all fine. The, the centre is, yeah. we'll sort things out. No need to take extreme action. It was actually the far left and far right in politics, says, no, 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 need for extreme action. They end up with the same thing, totalitarianism. Yeah, yeah. You, know, like, you said it beautifully. There, watch that again. <laughs> I watched you practice. Um, yeah. In an attempt to deal with it, you go to extremes, you go to these two behavioural extremes which end up coming together. So I think it is a fair analogy and I think it reflects that when faced with external threats and external difficulties, I was saying earlier on, some degree of anxiety improves our performance and then if you go over the top, it get worse and the behaviours become more and more aberrant. The same you could say when you were saying about the depressive thing earlier on, I would say humans can't be on and they certainly can't be on high alert all the time. So if you see anything good about slowing down and being reflective and and sometimes yes. needing to be more realistic about the world, not just hopelessly optimistic, needing to see the world as it is, you can say, well, some degree of what you might call depressive thinking or some degree of withdrawal is actually got some adaptive qualities, mm. <laughs> but only a little. <laughs> Don't go too far with that. Right. So I think the analogy is quite a good one. If you only go too far with either of those things, you end up in the same thing, an uncontrollable world. <laughs> To which the two sets of behaviours, this extremely anxious one or the extreme depressive one, gets you in more trouble. And they end up co-occurring. They're different kinds of responses to unresolvable difficulties, but you end up in just worse trouble. And and if you look at not the, the chronic mental health illness of anxiety and depression, but just the, the mild version of each state, without a bit of anxiety, we're in trouble, right? We get run over we don't put our taxes in, you know, we, we, we don't do the, we don't get motivated to do the things we, we need. We perform better with some degree of anxiety, exactly. most, ch- most challenging tasks. And without a degree of downtime and reflection, which isn't the same as depression, of course, but it's a similar energy state, without just now and again- Turning off, Zoning out, staring at the wall, watching the footy, whatever it is that you do to kind of zone out and recharge, we're in trouble too because that might lead to to burnout and overstimulation and running ourselves I'm down. glad you went down that track, yes, because you see that in a cognitive way. It's also true in a physiological way. You can't be on all the time. You yeah. can't be running on high. And I, mean the, I don't mean this figuratively. I and mean this, this is literally. you talking, yes. someone who appears to be actually the most honest person all the time that I, I've ever met. You've got to see me when I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. I have, I'm, I'm still waiting. <laughs> I've seen you on the beach and you've been off. <laughs> exactly. I can be, trust me, I can, I can. You can be off. I can be off. Well, it's a very important point because our 24-hour cycles, as we discuss quite often, are like that. They have an on state and then they have an off state. And the kind of idea that you can be on all the time, high performing, yes. high anxiety, you know, driven and not run into problems physiologically, mm. the body's not built for that. The body is built for on, response, then off. It has a whole lot of things you need to turn on in terms of adrenaline and cortisol and all sorts of things in response to threat and action, and then you've got to turn them off again. Yes. Otherwise, they actually do damage. So if you see the nice bit of what we might call depressive behavior as exactly that, the off period, the retreat, low motor activity, 
less response. Mm. During which you might do something interesting. You might be creative and reflective. But let's just say physiologically, you're not running around like a headless chook. Yeah. You've you got, you got actually low activity, low stress response. And there's a consequence of that. You've got low stress hormones and less adrenaline levels. You actually, the body repairs itself. Mm. So I think there is this physiological kind of aspect to that, which is true. A little bit. They both serve useful purposes, but not too much. And they head in different directions. So the, you, where you started from, you can see them physiologically as quite different in their physiology as well as in their behavior and typically in the kind of thoughts we have with them. Yeah. So does any of this, I mean, just talking about this, our anxiety and depression opposites, you know, I think what we're arriving at is is that in a way they are, but they feed each other and and they can, instead of cancelling each other out, they can actually magnify the effect of each. But if you look at the mild version of each, a little bit of anxiety about getting things done, a little bit of, not depression, but a down period, it is important to, to see them as opposites because then it helps us achieve a good balance between those two states that... Often we're not aware of, you know, I did this and I did that and I was a bit busy and I didn't have much on today. We don't really think of that in terms of balancing our life out. But if you do think of it that way, perhaps it helps. That's one level. And I think that's true. Mm. I think about it in terms of therapeutics or interventions. Yeah. Matching the right treatment to the right thing. Mm. So different anxiety states are associated with different kinds of behavior, different kinds of avoidance or different sorts of consequences. If someone's got anxiety associated with obsessional, obsessional thinking or compulsive behaviors, it requires things to stop that. If people have anxiety where they're reluctant to go out, kids who won't go to school at the moment post-COVID, or social anxiety requires different kinds of interventions, exposure to those uh, factors. If you've got a particular sort of anxiety, post-traumatic stress sort of anxiety may require different so there are different kinds of anxiety, which may be ongoing, which require different kinds of interventions. Mm. On the depressive side, there are, again, different kinds of interventions that may be relevant to, to dealing with the behaviours that people have. Stuck in bed all day, not going out, not s sleeping all the time, avoiding the light, not setting their body clock, engagement with the world, different kinds of problem-solving strategies. So that often we need to match the intervention to the specifics of the kind of anxiety or the kind of behavioural problem that runs with the kind of depression that they have. Do we know much about what can push anxiety into depression or depression into anxiety? You said that that if a person has one, they might be more likely to get the other. So what, in a way, flips it? Great question, James, because most of my own current research, what an excellent question, is I'm really interested in the lifetime trajectory of anxiety. Anxious kids become anxious, depressed teenagers and anxious, depressed substance abusing adults. But what is it? Well, not, not necessarily. Let's give a bit of hope there if you're a – Oh, good point. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm glad you pulled me up on that. Good point because what I'd like to do and people in my area would like to do is stop that before it happens. What has happened historically – is people don't get any help for their anxiety yes. or their anxiety or depression. So when I when I was much younger, met a lot of people in midlife who were anxious, depressed, substance abusing, just lost their wife and job. And you go, when did this start? Oh, about 15. Actually, I was an anxious kid. <laughs> and you go, would it have been possible? Would it have been possible to have dealt with the anxiety before it became anxiety and depression, before it became anxiety, depression, substance abuse and mm. chronic illness? So the whole early intervention and prevention idea is, is exactly that. And, uh, Could we stop it? Because if we treated the anxiety, would they never get depressed? 
I'm a story of hope. I was ah. a, I was an anxious kid, and then um, okay, in my twenties, but in my thirties, had three or four major like long periods of anxiety, lasting between some months and one was a couple of years. It was horrible. And then the last 20 years, and did a lot, lot of therapy and a lot of work, read about 500 books. Um, <laughs> really? Until, books, have you read that one called Mind in Your Mind? <laughs> yeah. Well, that wasn't out then, unfortunately. But but it is a good lesson in, I read not 500, but about 15 books and did all the strategies and it didn't work. And the 16th book I read by Dr. Claire Weeks um, had totally different approach and that was the one, and you talk about individual differences and yeah. finding thing that works for you, that was the one that worked for me. And the last kind of 15 years, it's been so much better. better. Not entirely gone, but much, 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 much better. So there is, you know, even- Even later on. In my late thirties was was when things started to improve for me. So here's two interesting things about that. Mm. You're describing the anxiety thing without, I'm assuming, ever flipping over into the depressive bit, despite having strong anxiety phenomena. Oh, it was pretty depressing. But, like I always thought, I I, I was a comedian at the time, and I, I used to, I can't remember if I ever said this on stage, but. What if the fact that you're anxious is the thing making you depressed? Or, or again, there was a lot of stigma around antidepressants that I was on for a while then, and I used to think, what if the thing that makes you depressed is actually the fact that you're on antidepressants? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Many people say that. I was never depressed. I've never been depressed. Okay, but you've been taking those antidepressants. Oh, well, they caused it. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Yeah. Many of our best antidepressants, particularly the Prozac-like drugs, the SSRIs, their principal target in truth is anxiety. Okay. And the thing they moderate- No, I think that's why I was put on. Yeah, and that thing they really moderate well. They're not actually better antidepressants than the old antidepressants. What they are is better day-to-day anxiety reduction drugs. So they lower your threshold for anxiety. And this is important because they therefore, in theory anyway, reduce the chance that you'll flip over into depression. Okay. And they also tend to prevent it or at least ameliorate it. So they work really well in people who have exactly what you described- a lifelong trajectory or underlying what we would call vulnerability called anxiety. Mm. What really interests me additionally, though, is, okay, how does that actually flip over? So one thing I said earlier on is anxious kids become anxious, depressed teenagers. So brain development during puberty is clearly one of the transitional stages associated with flipping over from anxiety to anxiety depression. You've got to have the brain mechanisms, maturation, hormones. Mm. But as life goes on, we're trying to study in the work I'm associated with what causes these flipping states. So you talked about spectrums of sort of sliding along anxiety and depression. I see it more as sort of, yeah, that's there, that's true. You slide along that spectrum, but sometimes you flip over into this depressive state. And then there's a vicious cycle where the depression makes the anxiety worse, the anxiety makes the mm. depression worse, and you're in that state. But then again, those states end also. Yeah. They don't necessarily just persist. Sometimes the depressive bit ends. So a lot of my own research at the moment is tied up in what is the thing? What is it that flips you from anxiety to anxiety and depression? And what is it that flips you out again? Is it there's a sort of on off? Worked it out on, yet? Got any theories? Worked it out yet. <clears throat> I will be a researcher for a very long time to come. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
For some kinds of depressions, the ones I'm interested in, again, particularly is what we call circadian or body clock type stuff, which are like sleep-wake cycle things. There are light switches and there are things in the brain that have that switchy type mechanism, like hibernation things in animals and probably have a species thing. They have an on-off kind of state. Mm. The one we have least good explanation for Mm. is the one we're discussing, the anxiety depression one. Why does some – because anxiety is pretty common. Yeah. And anxiety states are pretty common. But not everyone who's got anxiety does flip over into depression or in, certainly not into severe depression. But others do. So the physiological system that sits underneath it, the hypothalamic pituitary axis, the brain's regulation of these hormone systems, at some point but- flips, flips the thing over from a normal thing into a really bad thing and then somehow can turn it off again too. But how would you define... Flipping over for anxiety, depression. Because if you said to me, you know, when you're anxious, were you depressed? I'd say, well, I was really, really depressing. Waking up every morning and thinking, oh God, here I go again on this roundabout of repetitive, ruminative thoughts about things whose outcome I can't control. That was, that was really depressing. Was yeah, but did you? But I got out of bed every day, yeah, and exactly. I never missed any obligations, and I, I didn't have the the physical uh, symptoms of depression. So Gary McDonald, the great Australian actor and comedian, mm. gives a great talk about this phenomena and has anxiety his whole life and says anxiety is the problem, just like you articulated, mm. but has had some episodes in his life which have been disastrous. And he describes, you know, nothing worse than being a 40-year-old man lying naked in the fetal position in your bed and being unable to move <laughs> and having your mother or your wife or something come in and go, now, look, get out of bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Act, no, I can't. I can't move. I just cannot engage physiologically so that depressed state of just stopping yeah i never had that got it so that's different but the underlying vulnerability the thing that's been along there the thing that's led to it clearly the sort of you know cliff you've gone off has been a cliff of anxiety the anxiety has been there Mm. and then to prevent it in the future what do you do like and we described one which is Things like the SSRI drugs are really good, but so a lot of other things, cognitive behavioural therapy. The Claire Weeks thing you said earlier on, I think is really interesting. Lots of people say that book is really different to what a lot of psychologists and other people say. It's really different. Can I quickly not summarise the whole book? She she wrote about four or five books, I think, and they're all pretty thin. They all say- Short and smart. They're all variations of the the same thing. And she has a four-step process. Except you've got anxious thoughts, so don't stop thinking, oh, I wish I didn't have them. Except they're there. Observe them. And, and it's something like this. Observe them rather than be a part of them. And then, this is a bit that really connected with me, let them float past. So whenever you have an anxious thought, well, for me anyway, you want to grab it. Well, I might lose my job. Okay, what's the evidence I'll lose my job? What will happen if I do lose my job? How can I plan? I'm a bit of a planner, a bit of a control freak. So you want to grab it and just squeeze everything out of it and then argue back and forth. Well, I probably won't lose my job because of this. No, but I, I might because he looked at me funny and they were talking about redundancies and blah, 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 on and on and on and on it goes. But if you just see the thought as separate from yourself and just let it float past and don't give it any attention. Imagine there is someone, uh, uh, imagine there's a tiger behind you and instead of looking at it, you don't look at it, right? So if the thought is the tiger, eventually, if you don't give it any attention, it will go away because the thought grows on you giving it attention and and kind of giving it- Yeah, you're doing it again. That's a reverberating circuit. Do that again. Wave that hand around. I'm waving my hand around. But 
the thought will, the more you think about it, the bigger it'll get. Conversely, if you ignore it, it'll kind of shrink away. And that's the key, I think, that I got from Claire Weeks. Let the thoughts, observe them, let them float past, don't engage with them, look at something else. Really, really, really hard to do at first. Still pretty hard, but So to use a cricket me. analogy, James, letting the ball go through to the keeper. Exactly. Yeah. And what'll happen? That's okay. And that it's very interesting. What many batsmen can never learn to do is let the ball go through to the keeper. <laughs> Took me a while to learn. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Like how to get out in cricket. Mm. Playing outside the off stump. Yeah. Should have let that go. Yeah. Should have ignored it. Yeah, exactly. And I'll use the circuit or the feedback, positive feedback, the vicious cycle thing. The more you engage with it, the bigger it grows. Yeah, exactly. You feed it. So the Clear Week's kind of idea, and I think what's so smart about that is when people come along to see a therapist or engage in therapy or whatever, and like most medical things, if I'm in pain, I want the doctor to make the pain go away. <laughs> I want an intervention that will cure me of it. Mm. It'll kill it. Shoot the tiger. <laughs> Tiger's dead. Yeah, Excellent. exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, we're looking for something to wipe the thing out. There's other analogies here. And, I'm, I'm, and sometimes you can't find them. No. Like you don't know. You can't go to your boss and say, will I lose my job? Your boss will say, I don't know. Yeah, Possibly. <laughs> don't know. Next yeah. year's projections firm might not be here. Yeah. You, know, you might end up feeding the tiger. Find out the real truth. Mm. Your job really is quite insecure, as is the whole business. So that's a really smart insight, I think. And there are other areas. I can say uh, chronic pain, and there are other areas where this comes up, you know, that focusing on the thing increases the stress associated with the thing and causes it to be worse. Mm. So that's one is just, as you were describing it, not focusing on it, not feeding in it. Not. Related to that, and this is where sort of brain imaging sort of take it off a different sort of network analysis, is that this sort of stuff also gets larger when you're not doing anything. So as we've discussed before, if you want the brain network to switch from ruminating and getting stuck, the brain has to be doing something else. Yeah. So not only not looking at the tiger, but walking off to do You need to be doing something that takes your brain activity away from. So rather than going, is the tiger still there? Is the tiger still there? <laughs> That's really <laughs> You're hard. so busy mm. engaged in another activity. You, haven't, you don't really have time, which is called brain space, to be thinking about the tiger. Mm. That stuff gets worse when you're inactive. So when people are depressed and they're not doing anything, guess what happens? Those little reverberating circuits in their head get worse. Yeah. The ruminations, the thing, you know, so a lot of the time with people with depression, we've discussed before what's been done with dogs with learned helplessness and is to grab people and get them out of that state. So in Gary McDonald's case, somebody dragging him out of bed to get back to on the stage, to get back to acting. You said a really important thing. You never let it when you were really anxious. So in the, I don't know if you never let it. It sounds like it's a motivational thing. I don't want to, I don't want to put it that way. But you were able to, if I, if I could put it that way, mm. you were able to continue with doing things. Yes. Despite, despite. You were lucky? Well, I don't know. You were able to. However, able to. However, however that was possible, you were able to mm. do it. Is and that suggest, because, is that a willpower thing or is that just I was lucky? No, that, I'm, avoiding that, the, I'm avoiding the willpower question here or yeah, motivation yeah, or as yeah. if anyone who's depressed could simply do that. They would. But what people who are depressed mm. often need is somebody to do that. But let me ask you about that because you said, oh, Gary McDonald, someone dragged him out of bed. Like you can't drag an adult out of bed. 
You can you can barely drag anyone. Like you can lift a baby out of bed, but you cannot drag a. a, a I'm trying adult to get the odd teenager bed. out of bed. It's no easy business. I know. So it's no easy business. So so, so I don't mean. Uh, the, uh, how do you? How does that happen? Like you can't do it without them going. Yes, you're right. And if someone with depression has a extremely strong pessimistic bias, which they do when which they're depressed, they do. And so w- there's no point. I can't. No, but um, there is a point. There, there's a it point. It won't help. No, but they will think. They will say there's no point. They will strongly dissent from your view. Yes. Because their internal world isn't like that at yes. all. And it seems like a pointless and it seems in many ways punitive. Really interestingly, many people with depression have written about this, about the punitive things that are done to them by others, attempting to push them back in the world. But you can't. I mean, you're making. I'm making pushing. I'm making pushing motions. You literally can't do that to an adult. Like, it's physically not possible. Right now, this is one of those complicated issues for people who go in and out of these states. What do you trust people to do when you can't do it yourself? Mm. Which is really tricky. So people have been through these states on multiple occasions and have other people they trust. We often talk about advanced directives and things, things it's okay to do to me <laughs> when I'm in this state. Like Just drag them out, literally like, lift them out of like bed? Like assist best you can right. in those states. Because re-engagement with the world, moving it, just literally moving again, other things we talk about, sunlight exposure activity, but just moving back into the world yeah. has a really therapeutic effect. Now, many of us have this because we go to work every day, <laughs> do things. I mean, I woke up mm. I wake up many mornings thinking, nice day to be in bed. <laughs> but, you know, off we go. Now, of course, you're in the state. Much, like, much harder, much harder, much harder. I'm very yeah. interested in this. Yeah. If you gave me permission, right, yep. you said, James, I get in these depressive states, you have permission to try and get me out of bed and into the backyard at least, yep. right? Yep. And so I would come in and you go, piss off, James. Yep. And I'd say, no, and you gave me permission. Yep. Right? You yep. didn't give anyone in your family permission, just me, your yep. podcast partner. Right? Yep. I come over. Yep. So I'm actually going to grab your leg and I'm going to pull it off the bed and I'm going to- I'm going to start the process. Like you've got the blinds closed, you're in bed, you're doing nothing, blinds open are blind. opening. Yep. You ever seen those beds that tip people out? You know, I'm going to actually start to engage in those yeah. activities consistent with you moving forward. Yeah. But at some point, you're either going to, like, I can, I'm not strong enough to pick you up and carry you into the backyard. You're either going to go, okay, or you're going to go, no. Nah. Like, exactly. I can't do it. Exactly. But you're going to stick at those sets of con- contingencies. I mean, we often see this very interestingly. There are clinics and things we run hmm. that require people to go to clinics for treatment. To yeah. And we have a lot of debate about what's the therapeutic bit. <laughs> is it getting the person there? It's like going to work. Is getting them to treatment every day? Is that actually the therapeutic bit rather right. than what we do when they get yeah. there? <laughs> <laughs> Just the fact they're out of bed. They're yes. Pissed, they're there. And they're active and mm. there's a – Definitely a benefit derived from doing it. Now, we know this. Well, they will think, I didn't want to do that, but I did it. So I'm not completely useless, rather than I should have done that and I didn't. I don't want to point out the obvious, but you did do it. Yeah. Now, if you said to the person, I, and this happens, okay, it's not a treatment day. Well, I can't do anything. I'm staying in bed. I'm not, I'm not moving. Okay, but it's a treatment day. Can we do that? Mumble, mumble. All right. Mm. I'll get in the car, you drive, or whatever. We're going. 
So people do turn up. Yeah, yeah. People do turn up to our clinics for particular treatments that require them to be in the clinic. Yeah. And then we, which has benefits. Now, of course, we think it's the marvellous treatment we give. But maybe it's just doing something. But the behavioural side of it is it is also interfering with the behavioural problem mm. that depression is reinforcing. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a really interesting dilemma. Yeah. Fascinating. I thought this would be a short episode. Oh, no, we could uh, – no, no. If we, you, you asked me the question, do we know what turns the anxiety <laughs> of the present episode? I'm telling you the rest of my research career is devoted to that. What is the flip? What's the switch? Because well, if we could stop people going there or mm. we knew how to switch out of it again, boy, would my life be a lot easier. Or my life wouldn't – people have these Yeah, well, your life would be easy because your research would be, be done business. and a lot of <laughs> other people. Yes. Yeah, well, if you have any questions or comments, thanks to everyone, by the way, who's sent us emails for questions, comments, and importantly, further topics for us to discuss, do send us an email at miningyourmind2, that's miningyourmindnumeral2 at gmail.com. Uh, our book, Mining Your Mind, written by Ian and myself, that covers lots of the topics and concepts and ideas and strategies we discuss, is out. You can get it if you want. Mining Your Mind is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them. You can call Lifeline on 13114.